Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Fighting on Film Podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Broadsword calling Danny Boy, Broadsword calling Danny Boy, over... Hello, Robbie here. If you have a Where Eagles Dare fan in your life, we've produced a series of Christmas t-shirts featuring your favourite characters from the movie. Please go to fightingonfilm.com and find the Foss shop where you'll be able to check out our merchandise. Hello and Merry Christmas. Today on the show, we tackle one of the greats of the war movie genre as we don our parkers, load our MP40s and get ready to scale that cable car wire as we look back at 1968's Where Eagles Dare and we have a special guest to help us infiltrate Schloss Adler. We welcome no one other than Jeff Dyer to the show. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, thank you. Uh, who better to have with us um, because he wrote a book in 2018 called Broadsword Calling Danny Boy and it was just a perfect, perfect uh, guest. So Matt, maybe you want to start with the production of this one. Absolutely. So uh, it's, I mean, it's an absolute classic. So directed by uh, Brian Hutton, Brian G. Hutton, who is also very well known for directing Kelly's Heroes, his other war movie, but he didn't direct too many films. Um, interestingly, he was an actor turned director. Um, and he also directed uh, an interesting movie called uh, High Road to China with Tom Selleck, set in the 30s. Um, the film's really interesting because apparently Elliot Kastner, the uh, producer, approached um, Alistair MacLean to to uh, write a screenplay. And at the time, a lot of MacLean's books had been adapted from novels um, into screenplays. So MacLean writing the screenplay before the novel is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in a 1998 um, film review interview with Kastner, um, film review magazine, I should say, um, 
uh, he he, uh, he explained to the author that he told McLean, I want a team of five or six guys on a mission in the Second World War facing enormous obstacles. I want a mystery. I want a sweaty, exciting adventure movie. And that's all I told him. Wow. <laughs> Which is, it's what he got, isn't it? I mean, yeah. this is the pinnacle of men on a mission World War II action movies. Wouldn't you say, Jeff? Can I? I can't uh, think of yeah, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, certainly uh, McLean delivered exactly, exactly what he wanted. And you can see how uh, it wasn't uh, an entirely random choice on Kastner's part to get McLean mm. to do this, because, I mean, that description of what he wanted uh, could actually double as a description of, I don't know, Guns of Navarone or Force yeah. 10 from Navarone. In fact, any number of, uh, of, of McLean books. But I think... Uh, with this, uh, with this particular mission or caper or escapade, whatever you want to call it, McLean really excelled himself in terms of the diff- the obstacles encountered. Yeah, this is the kind of apotheosis of a particular version of uh, the the World War Two small team mission. I think what helps the the, the screenplay is that they Hutton and. Um... Kastner, they worked on, I think if I'm right, they worked on whittling down the script from like 160 pages down to like 130 to tighten it up. Mm-hmm. So perhaps in the that editing process that, um, that McLean didn't do- normally go through, um, working with as a team with other people, that made it really tight and took just the essence mm-hmm. and, and all the best parts. Yeah, it's quite quite interesting. I mean, uh, McLean was a was famously good at sort of stripping down uh, his plots to just sort of action, mm-hmm. and he always attributed part of his great success to the way that was really never any romance in his yeah. uh, in his novels, because uh, he felt that was a distraction from the kind of high speed excitement of it. So it's quite interesting. Although, yeah, the script was was whittled down. Uh, but there is the addition of of romance, but it's rather cleverly done because it's romance combined with action. So the uh, mm-hmm. relationship between uh, Mary Yore, this kind of very uh, uh, attractive secret agent, even more secret in a way than uh, than the others, because most apart from Burton, nobody nobody knows that she's on the plane, which, which mm-hmm. uh, she parachutes out afterwards. So in some ways, it's quite nice that this. You could say this rather sort of, uh, you know, puritanical attitude that McLean had no sex in my books kind of thing, unlike Desmond Bagley, say. What it ended up doing in this film is that Mary Yore becomes a kind of pro- prototypical feminist uh, uh, hero in that before then, you know, the role of film of women was to get endangered. Uh, to start screaming and crying and then get, uh, well, ideally get their kit off and then get rescued. Uh, and of course, none of that applies to Mary Yore because she can uh, she can, she can sh- shoot them up along with the, the best of the boys, can't she? She can indeed. So moving on with the production side of things, we've got cinematography from Arthur Ibbotson, who was Oscar nominated in 1969. Uh, Rob, you're like this, that he, uh, he, did, he worked on The League of Gentlemen. Oh, um, one of my with, favorites. With Hawkins, yeah. Uh, Tunes of Glory in 1960, The Railway Children. Uh, when Eight Bells Told, that's another classic Men on a yeah. Mission adventure movie. That's a good with, one. Um, it is. Um, uh, and then, of course, in 1971, he did the cinematography for uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as well. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a very yeah. career. Um, and we can't discuss production without mentioning Ron Goodwin's incredible score. Because... It, I mean, the, the first the first part of your book is dedicated to that opening sequence, isn't it, Jeff? And it's 
And I love the way you describe that, the, the way that that score just seems to reverberate around the Alps um, yeah. as the, mm. the chaps are on the aircraft. It's, I think, honestly, for me, if we ever did a, a vote on it, I think I would say it's the best war movie theme ever Ooh. done. Uh, I don't know what you well, chaps think. Uh, you know, well, I mean, I, I I hope we're not being disrespectful towards uh, Bridge on the River Kwai with that. Oh, that's good too, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd say Zulu for me runs quite well, close. Yeah. Well, like the one of that. I mean, I like that there's, there's um, conjecture there's, there's early on. Conjecture is quite, yeah, I like it. But I, I think um, the point you're making, Matt, the crucial thing is that it's uh, it's so difficult to diso- disassociate the score from what mm. we're seeing on screen. And of course, you know, as we know, uh, anyone can come up with sort of a, a, a piece of great music. But I think when we, quite often when we uh, listen to a film score, uh, in a way, a sign of the greatness of a film score, in a way, can be how disappointing it is when we hear it without the visual backup. So I mm. think the crucial thing is that perfect marriage which we get in this between what we're seeing and what we're hearing. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a package, isn't it? it really and is. You, you can put that you can put that music on while you're doing the most mundane of household tasks, <laughs> you know, um, and it just it just makes things a little bit more exciting, I think. Yes, but it does. I, I I pose that question: um, Is this the you know the greatest war movie theme ever? But we've got to consider that Goodwin also did Six Three Three Squadron in 1964 mm. and the Battle of Britain in 1969. So and the Four Stem from Navarone as well um in 1978 so he he worked on a whole slew of war movies which and two of those have incredible themes i can't actually remember the one for force 10 from navarone um, no nor can i but i can i can definitely remember 63 squadron and battle of britain's theme yeah theme, so um, the thing with the where eagles dare theme is that it's not that you can remember it it's actually sort of part of one's bloodstream isn't it so it doesn't require any cognitive effort to to remember it. It's actually just as as physically part drum. of us. Yeah, yeah. The, snare, yeah, the snare drum. Yeah, it's great. And, and I just <laughs> yeah. think I just can see a plane flying through the Alps. Like you don't, don't have to, you know. It's just that mental imagery that sums yeah. up. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, to, to round out production, it was filmed uh, in various locations in Aust- uh, Austria, with the scenes at Slosh Adler be- being filmed at uh, Berg. Hoffenwerfen, uh, Werfen, yeah, Hoffenwerfen, is that, best, is that? I'm trying here. I'm, obviously, I've not had enough coffee this morning. Um, <laughs> the, the actors in the in the film speak better German than you because they speak German in English, of course. Yes, true. Yeah. <laughs> None of them even, I think it's only Nesbitt that makes an effort, a, a, a little bit of an accent as well. No one else. Does, They're all actually. supposed to be German speakers, yeah. like speaking German, but no one, no one else really makes an effort to put a little... It's a classic yeah. commando book thing where everyone <laughs> speaks English. <laughs> Love yes. it. Um, budget was six to seven million, I believe, and it was shot on uh, Kodak um, Easterman, and it was uh, processed with the Metro, because it was an MGM picture, Metro uh, color process, which gives it that characteristic, really crisp, beautiful color palette. Mm. And, it, it, you know, it makes the cold feel cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, that that basically rounds it out for production. Um and I know there's a heck of a cast you want to talk about, Rob. Yeah, there is. And I'll try and rattle through them quite quickly because um, we could be here forever on cast, really, with the amount of credits these these people have got. So, obviously, we have Richard Burton as Major John Smith. He's that late, legendary Welsh actor. 
BAFTA winner, Academy Award nominees, no stranger to war films. If you listen to our Wild Geese episode, I'll have run through these already, but here we go again. Uh, the Desert Rats, Bitter Victory, The Longest Day, uh, the Spike uh, Classic, the Spy Came In From The Cold, which he won a BAFTA for and an Academy Award nomination. And of course, we couldn't finish uh, his credits without mentioning his role in The Wild Geese as uh, Faulkner. Then we have Clint Eastwood playing uh, Lieutenant Maurice Schaefer, another legendary four-time Oscar-winning actor, um, known for his roles as the strong, silent type in many westerns, like A Fistful of Dollars, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, High Plains Drifter, A Few Dollars More. Um, he's just as revered for his war movie work, having played the lead in Brian Hatton's follow-up to Eagles Day in 1970 as Kelly in Kelly's Heroes as well as No Nonsense Gunny Highway in Heartbreak Ridge, as well as directing two war movies, Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers. And it's a very top-heavy cast, I must admit, because um, everyone else is sort of like a very good British character actor or, you know, has been in lots of TV work. But, they're you know, they're worth mentioning nevertheless. So we have Patrick Wymark playing uh, Colonel Watt Turner, Spoiler alert, everyone. He's the real villain of the film. Um, he's the late British actor again, who appeared in some classic war, uh, classic films of the 60s, including, as we mentioned earlier, perhaps my n- non-war genre favourite British film ever, The League of Gentlemen. He played Wiley in that. I think he was someone that Richard Attenborough was working for in the, in the start of that movie, if I remember rightly. Uh, he played the prison camp commander, Major Giacomo, in uh, The Camp on Blood Island. Uh, and he also uh-huh. played Churchill twice, once in a 1964 documentary called Their Finest Hours, then a year later in Operation Crossbow. And apparently he voiced, um, he was like some, something of a voice alike for Churchill, appearing in lots of um, different documentaries as Churchill and voice work. And he also appears yeah. in uh, the Battle of Britain as uh, Chief uh, Marshal Mallory. Which is quite cool. I can see him as I can see him as uh, Churchill. Yeah, there's a there's a very blurry yeah, photo a, on a fan website, a look, and it looks there's a good. Look of it. Mm. Yeah, a little bit. See, I always think his role should have been Jack Hawkins or Stanley Baker. Mm. Or just Cherry on the mm. top would have been really yeah, good. Yeah, or Trevor Howard. Yeah, it's, it's very in that ilk, isn't it? And then we mm. have uh, Michael Horden playing Vice Admiral Mallory. He was a Shakespearean actor who actually served on HMS Illustrious during the Second World War. Uh, his war movie credits include School for Secrets, The Man Who Never Was, I Was Monty's Double, Sink the Bismarck. And he was also in Spy Who Came from the Cold with Burton playing Ash. We have Donald Houston as uh, Captain Olaf Christiansen. He's a Welsh actor, no stranger to war movies again, appearing in The Red Beret, The Yanks Instant, The 300 Spartans, The Longest Day Again, uh, 633 Squadron. And then towards the end of his career, he was in The Seawolves, which is like a sort of semi-pseudo sequel to The Wild Geese. Uh, then we have Peter Barkworth, who played Captain Ted Berkeley, a British actor again. He was in Doctor Who, Secret Army. Uh, he played Stanley Baldwin in Churchill, The Wilderness Years in 1981. His earliest film credit is actually 1953's The Mortar Story in an uncredited role. But I think yeah. his probably his, his most known credit is Where Eagles Dare. But he also appears in Patton as well. Then we brought, come on to Ingrid Pitt. She plays Heidi Schmidt. Um, she's Smith's love interest. Known for her roles in cult horror movies such as The House That Dripped With Blood. Then she went on to do Hammer horror movies and she became a real like sort of femme fatale in those. Um, and uh, she was also in uh, 1982's Who Dares Wins as Helga, the sort of no-nonsense mm-hmm. terrorist henchwoman. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, I think her probably her biggest film credit is Where Eagles Dare. And she would have been reunited with uh, Burton in 1985's Wild Geese 2, but... Burton passed away before filming had commenced on that one. Um, then we have Mary Uri, uh, or Ura, 
Um, she plays Mary Ellison, and I bet that uh, Alistair McLean was up all night thinking of what to call her character. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have, um, uh, she actually appeared alongside Burton in the 1959 film Look Back in Anger as Alison Porter, mm-hmm. and she'd also played the same role on Broadway, winning a Tony. So I think it's amazing that you give such, not a small role, but you give such a sort of not leading lady part to a really you know, really well-revered theatre actress. Um, and she does amazingly well, thinking this is her first sort of action role. I think she's great in it. Um, and then we have uh, Neil McCarthy playing Sergeant Jock McPherson. He was Burton in The Hill, Sydney Lumet fans. Uh, he was Private Thomas in Zulu. And he also appears in an episode of The Professionals in 1980, which I thought was quite mm-hmm. funny. And then we have Robert Beatty playing Brigadier General George Carnaby. He's a Canadian actor. Uh, his Some of his first work, he was on the BBC in the Second World War reporting on the Blitz. Um, then he appeared in The First of the Few in 1942, Santa Metro London in 1943. One of our aircraft is missing. Um, Matt, he was in Hornblower in 1959 as well. He was. He yeah. was. And then to just round out the cast, we have our two big German characters. We have Anton Differing as Colonel Paul Kramer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's that German officer that... German actor, sorry, that plays an officer in nearly everything you've probably seen him in, <laughs> such as the Red Beret, Here is a Telemark, Operation Daybreak, Escape to Victory, the list goes on. And then finally, we have Darren Nesbitt playing Major von Heppen, and he's the big bad Gestapo officer, probably the only true sort of genuine evil character in the film, I think, um, apart from Christensen and Berkeley. He's just very sinister, later. isn't he? Yeah, he's very sinister <laughs> about it. Yeah. So his his early film roles include parts in The Silent Enemy, which was a Lawrence Harvey movie about frogmen. Um, and then he oh. was in A Night to Remember. His, his TV work, he was DCI Jordan in the BBC's uh, police drama Special Branch in the early 70s, mm-hmm. just like a mm-hmm. forerunner to the Sweeney. And then again, I, I think his biggest film role is probably this. And he actually spoke to real ex Gestapo officers to get into character, which I think was quite. Oh quite a thing but yeah that's your cast i mean and how good are they it's one of those sort of yeah perfectly it's cast movies even the small parts you know a lot of those character actors bring a lot to it i think well, just you know, looks and, and mannerisms and, and movements and mm. even i think one of them said they had about five lines and it took six months months for him to, <laughs> to deliver those five but he really enjoyed it's, doing uh, the film yeah it's quite a it's quite a contrast this film with uh, today's films where quite often you're straining your ears to ears to hear what they're what they're saying and you know people are sort of mumbling away in a very authentic way whereas mm-hmm. one of the pleasures of this uh, of this film is the amazing shakespearean clarity that these people like patrick weimark and michael horden bring to their to their roles so even when they're just delivering a really quite matter of fact bit of mission speak it really you could be forgiven for thinking that you're listening to some great sort of shakespearean soliloquy from i don't know richard the third or henry the <laughs> fifth mm. something like that yeah everything is really to the point you know directed to the audience i think that's maybe because of your burton's obviously theatre work and everyone must have been bringing their a game because he's involved it's a total movie experience but we have also that kind of classic british thespian theatrical Mm. um enunciation going on don't we yeah we do and then we have like the early sort of action type cliches coming in with clint eastwood i think is really interesting 
It's yeah. almost like a sea change is coming in. I'll talk more about Eastwood later. But we have another retro review for you this week, and it comes from Variety in December 31st, 1968. And I think I'll probably read the whole thing because it's not very long. So Alistair MacLean wrote an original screenplay that was treated with the respect for the writer's unusual abilities as a master of action for suspense. The resulting film is a highly entertaining, thrilling, and really lets down for a moment. It's based, uh, sorry, Richard Burton is a British agent. Clint Eastwood, an OSS assassin, head the crew, which leads a femme agent, Merio, who works at the spy, who works as a spy. Although the film is replete with killings and explosions, they're so integri- in- integrated into the story that they never appear overdone. It's more of a saga of cool, calculated courage than a glorification of war. Burton never treats his role, though full of cliches, as anything less than Hamlet. Eastwood seems rather wooden in the early scenes, but snaps out of it when the action starts. Anything less than Hamlet, I like that. It's great, yeah. isn't it? It's really that, good. That, the scene, the scenes in the hall where he delivers that um, that almost monologue, mm. um, and the whole thing unfolds. It's just we'll probably come to that later in favorite oh, scenes. I'm sure. Doubt. Yeah, yeah. It's, doubt. Fun, it's funny that though they say, um, yeah, it is very Shakespearean that scene, isn't it? There they are, are all gathered there, and at the end, of course, a lot of them are uh, are killed, which reminds me of that competition in. The New Statesman many years ago, where people were asked to come up with tabloid descriptions of Shakespearean plays, and the one for Hamlet <laughs> was Seven Slain in Palace Brawl, which is, uh, <laughs> turns out to be. But the irony of, of that, of course, is that uh, the person who looks most like Hamlet, who looks incredibly like Laurence Olivier playing Hamlet, is none other than uh, Darren Nesbitt, the, yeah. the you know the the yeah. bad Nazi. <laughs> yeah, that's great, um, and. And always, we ask for the one-word review. And this week, it was an absolute bumper haul. I think the I think the Twitter servers must have been going into meltdown um, at Twitter HQ because we had something like even as we're recording now, we're still having people dropping their one-word reviews in. But I will only read a few because we'd be here for hours. So David McNay goes with wintry. Ian McKellen goes with Alps. Brian Williams says Kubelbargen. Ad Bond goes with camouflage. Leslie Moore says jacket. And Brian Williams says silencer. And we had so many people mm-hmm. just like quoting the movie. I think we had, I think Mary Brazier's one of my favorite ones where she said like it's 70s haircuts. And I'd never thought of that before. Like there were some <laughs> great ones. Yeah, it's um, very, very 60s haircuts. Very, very much so. Um, but yeah, thanks for all your input. Eastwood apparently like refused to have his haircut, if I remember rightly. Oh, really? I read that somewhere. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> Incidentally, I've got a little um, extract from Burton's diary from 1968, which I think is great to share at this point. It says, It appears for Eagles Dare, a film I made earlier this year, is a thrilling film and is likely to be a huge grocer. The few people who have seen it are enraptured. It's a boy's own paper fantasy with a vengeance. I kill half the German army. <laughs> Need someone to edit that and go, no, Clint does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You but to be fair, to. At, at the very end, Burton does does make the plane wait while he gets those last few lads in that Cuba wagon on yeah. the airstrip. Yeah. He does what he didn't do in The World Geese. You know, yeah. forgets to do it's, it like in the seventies. It's more like a sort of mathematical improbability. I I kill half the German army, and Clint Eastwood kills three quarters of them. <laughs> you know, there's such a sort of surplus of death. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder it. if anyone's done a kill count on this yet. Oh, they have. It's on oh, YouTube. Yeah, have you yeah. seen it? I'm sure yeah. they have. It's like a video game type overlay, and it's got like reload never, and it's quite funny. 
So I think with talking about Kit there very briefly, we should probably move into the alley tally this week. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. As our guest, uh, Jeff, um, do, do you have a piece of kit or a piece of equipment that you love from this movie to kick us off with? Oh, um, well, I, I like it all. I mean, I've got this, uh, I've got this <laughs> green, yeah, I've got this green parka that I really, that I wear, that I really like and was so proud of, but I felt rather crestfallen when I wore it to a party and my friend greeted me with the words, oh, hello, Liam, as though I was dressed like Liam Gallagher. Oh, uh, <laughs> I, but the other day I was wearing it here in uh, California with a kind of baseball hat. And because it was kind of uncharacter, the weather was uncharacteristically bad, I had this moment where I thought, oh, God, if the cap was slightly different, then I would I could actually pass as a member of the Where Eagles Dare uh, sort of uh, uh, crew. So, yeah, I like <laughs> yeah, I, I like the I, I, uh, I like the. Uh, the the gear very that the clothing very much but mm. it's all it's all great and it's uh the key thing to say about it i think is that it's um you know it's a real it's it's all german all the gear that mm. they're using i mean they fly in on a german plane they rely entirely on german weaponry of course as we were saying they're wearing german uniforms so it turns out this film in which uh, you know we uh, we comprehensively trash the Schloss Adler, it ends up really being a tacit advert for the superiority <laughs> of German technology over yes. Britain British technology, and that's really brought home in the closing scene. I guess it's okay because I mean everyone's seen the film to mention this. Oh, so yeah. as everyone knows, you know when they uh, when when they're on the film, Spoilers. you know, we finally see a a, a a British gun, a Sten gun, and of course, typically, you know, what does it do? Well, it malfunctions. It doesn't work because they've taken the precaution of removing the firing pin. But yes, I I love the the ironic <laughs> message of this film, which is that uh, Germany might have lost the war, but it uh, it certainly won the manufacturing peace. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, and and it's for me like that Parker as well. I mean, I've got. In my notes, I put Parker's pistols and MP40s as like a sort of sub uh, subtitle, mm -hmm. but it, it is that Parker, isn't it? It's a tannin and, and water camouflage, they call it. And it seems to have been designed for the film off of um, Parker's of the time. And it's mm. sort of like a mixture of German splinter tarn and sump tarn. Um, and it has a reversible sort of thing where you can you can wear it one way and it's the white for the, for the snow, wear it another mm. way. It's tree camouflage. And it's so iconic that... When you search it up, there's a website in the UK, a company in the UK called Soldier of Fortune, and they make uh, reproduction uh, military clothing. And it's called the Where Eagles Dare Parker. And I, oh, I, how great. Yeah, I put in my notes, not many war films get a coat named after them. So I think it might be yeah. the only film that has. Um, I think we should also, of course, as you say, it's reversible, which is which is uh, great. But um, the other uh, fantastic thing about it, it does seem to have a, I don't know whether clothing comes like duvets with a, a sort of tog rating, but it does seem to keep them uh, incredibly yeah. warm, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a line where um, I think Burton says, put that parka on or, or uh, put that coat on or you'll freeze to death. And I'm looking at it and putting it on. I'm thinking it's, it's like a 
the thinnest thing going. I'm like, you're, you're uh, yeah. not gonna <laughs> like you know survive if you wear that. Um, but Matt, you're yeah. a you're a weapons expert. Do you want to fill us in on some of the some of the weapons used? I mean, we've said the MP40, but I know there's more. Yeah, well, I, 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 according to the uh, on location where it there behind the scenes film that was made during the filming of the film, um, the armorer in that actually uh, talks about how they have ten to twenty thousand rounds of ammunition, blank wow. ammunition for the MP40s, ready to go. And they're expecting to use another ten thousand for the other weapons, which I thought was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, in in terms of in terms of uh, other weapons in there, you've got those really cool suppressed Walther PPK pistols that um, Clint shoots a, 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 an eighth of the German army with, um, <laughs> yeah. normally from the hip, very very Western style. Very, um, yeah. Uh, and Mario has this beautiful little Beretta 950 mm. with a tiny little suppressor of her own on it. Um, and you see that when I think she meets um, Ben in the woodshed um, yeah. at the very start of the film. Uh, and that's probably standing in it for like a Beretta 418 or a Model 1934, I think. But that mm. silence is very dinky and very cute. And um, we can't we can't talk about the Alitali without mentioning our our good friend Jim Dowdle on the MG forty two in the um in the the hall sequence yeah um, so we we a, f- uh, a few months ago we had we had Jim Dowdle um legendary stuntman on uh, to talk about his career in film and he told us all about that sequence the iconic sequence in the hall um where he's a young I think he's I think he said he was about eighteen years old at that point yeah he was very um, young. and he's the chap that's behind the mg42 firing it and he, he has his eyes closed for most of the shots you see him because because yeah. <laughs> of probably the concussion and the noise from the blast. was he like an armor's um, assistant on it or something like, I, can't, I can't remember exactly the i believe had. that was like yeah, yeah he was and and his stunt career kind of grew from there Blossomed he was, he was from a, there. um yeah an, an extra and and just it's an incredible scene to have talked to the man that was on the MG42 in the hall sequences. Amazing. Killed by Clint Eastwood, yeah. <laughs> of course, he shared that Clint was the, the man behind the idea of dual wielding the MP40s, which uh-huh. made my day to learn yeah, that. That was amazing incredible. to learn. Yeah. It's, 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 it's such a great sequence, isn't it? I think it's interesting as well that we, we this movie is like revered and loved, isn't it? It's, it's eternal, it's timeless. But when you look at the, the weaponry, you think, you think, oh, it'd be this massive gun fest. But really, there's only maybe three or four weapons in the whole thing. Yeah. And they're not really, they're sort of set dressing until, you know, like an hour or so in. It's amazing how until that sequence, there's very little action, but it's so engaging. I think that's, the. I'll come on to it later, but it's one of the strengths of the movie, isn't it? That it's a war film, but it only has war in it for maybe half an hour yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. it's um, such a it's such a good interesting movie in that regard in terms of the limited numbers of number of weapons they have i mean there is a uh it's not surprising given that they only they they're entirely reliant on uh uh what they what they bring with them on the, yes. the jump in so of course those mm. sort of ca- canisters arrive but uh you know they're uh they make their way into Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The town on foot. So, well, you know, they only have weaponry that they can carry. Yes. In the, yeah. in the TARDIS Bergens. We can't not mention the TARDIS Bergens. Bigger on the inside. How the sticks of dynamite are coming out of these two uh, yeah, Bergens. Yeah. Enough, that, to take, yes, enough to destroy an entire castle. Yes, yeah, it's funny. That. I mean, all this kind of outdoor wear and rucksacks, you know, the technology has increased, has sort of uh, increased in quality so much in recent years. But still, they've not been able to work out how you can get so much into such a small rucksack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got one of those coats that you can you can crush down to about that size, like like a, a fist. Crisp packet. But, yes, exactly. A crisp packet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's nothing on the on the TARDIS Bergens no that burn in the lights no, yeah. yeah. It's how Clint you know carries you know a million rounds of ammunition with, with ease in one of those things. Mm. It's amazing. <laughs> so I think I maybe suppose, sorry. Actually, before we move on, Rob, we can't not sure. talk about the helicopter. Oh mm. yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, the 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 strange inclusion of the helicopter. I suppose it was to give the uh, the German general a grand entrance. Would you? Think? I think it is, yeah, I think... and I always assumed it was because it's not the same a... in coming off the cable car, is it? You know, it's... no, not really. I mean, I always thought it's because you know they're on this Schloss Adler. It's meant to be this really top secret impregnable. castle, impregnable yeah. castle, and it, it is a Bell H. How's it? Hang on, put it in my notes. It's a Bell uh, HTL four. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I, I got HTL four. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're both right. I don't Different know. Probably the same I'm no either. helicopter expert, um, but I love how it's just referenced to as the machine by the Germans. So they give them a little bit of like license there. It's like it's a new contraption. But then later yeah. in the movie, Burton just goes helicopter. I'm like Richard. <laughs> like, Come on. It's just it's... they just drop it like it's like this mystical machine, and it's nothing. I love it. It's great. I wonder if that's also part of, I mean, it, that's the sort of uh, anachronism uh, that everyone talks of. Mm. And I wonder if it's also deliberate in the in the same way some of the sort of sequences are, whereby, yes, it's a Second World War film, but they also want to just give it just a hint of kind of James Bond, the man mm. from Uncle, that kind of a, that kind of quality. All the yeah. silence, pistols, yeah, stuff. Mm. To make it contemporary. And I should add, by the way, that one of the, sort of things about uh, Los Angeles, where I'm speaking from, you see interesting things on the street. So as I was cycling along yesterday, there was this helicopter um, parked on the street. Wow. Uh, just like, I mean, it might not have been exactly that one. It was that kind of size. And there was a sign on it from a guy saying, uh, you know, need, uh, need to raise money for uh, for my brain cancer. So I'm having to to sell this to a, to somebody oh, with wow. a good home. So oh, um, wow. yeah. that wasn't anachronistic, but it was uh, every bit as unexpected to see it parked on a suburban mm. street in L.A. as it was to see it uh, turning up at the good old Schloss Adler. Yeah. Wow. It's um. I think it's um, 
It's interesting because I talk about the accuracy thing there. I, I know there's people that say, oh, the helicopter, the Junkers is wrong. Oh, the, the, you know, there's this and that and the other. But I always think with these movies, it, it, it's just in a commando book on like film. So that the fact that it's inaccurate yeah. never even enters into my brain because I know that this never happened. It's not it's not like a, a bridge too far. It's not like a, you know, the opening sequence of Seven Private Ryan where they're trying to recreate something. It's just a boy's yeah, own adventure. It's an film. adventure film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I just think it's always interesting when people bring up the helicopter. I'm like, well. Hey, if Burton said it in his diary, <laughs> you know, it's an adventure film. It's yeah, not a exactly. serious war movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, to Burton, but, it was. I mean, if. Yeah. If you want to pick out, if if you want to pick into things, you know the 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 bus is from the fifties. Yeah, exactly. The, the Graf and Stiff bus is a sixties, um, sorry, fifties uh, built bus. The there's Marder infantry fighting vehicles which stand in for for little tanks in the town. Well, I think they're, they're actually sa- sour. Um, they're sour SPZs, apparently. Okay, Austrians. that makes sense. Yeah. Filmed in Austria. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, they didn't use sticks of dynamite. SOE and OSS didn't no, use exactly, sticks of dynamite. Yeah. They had they had blocks of explosive, and they never used those little ticking clock sort mm. of delay fuses. They had delay action fuses and, and friction I, fuses. And I also love the larger fuses. than the larger than life commando book type potato mash with grenades that are just huge. Oh, yeah. I love those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're so yeah. great. But they're there um, for a reason. It, it's what what the audience expects to see. Um, yeah. Yeah. And none of these. Um, I think the crucial thing is that none of these um, anachronisms or things like that, they don't, uh, they never for a moment take us out of the immersion in mm. the experience. No, exactly. so it's not like the famous bit in, uh, I think it's in Ben Hur, when uh, if you look closely, one of the centurions is wearing a wristwatch. Oh, um, yes. And, uh, you know, I feel with this film, everything is, is of, of a piece and we're mm. just completely completely uh, you know we give us it's that the fabric of uh of belief is never mm. is never torn by any particular uh yeah. detail that's that's not consistent with the time mm. agreed it's pure escapism so i think moving on we should talk about our fave scenes hello there sorry to interrupt i wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on patreon as thanks for your support you'll be able to help us pick films submit questions for guests have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Again, Jeff, you're our guest. What's your favourite scene? Well, I guess my favourite scene, uh, I can't remember exactly how long the film lasts, but it's that. It's the the whole film. The whole film is my my, my <laughs> favourite scene. But I guess, I mean, you know, we uh, we uh, you're absolutely right to stress that. Yeah, for the first hour, nothing much happens. But I think uh, it would be, yeah, let's, uh, I mean, there's, it seems to me we've got two nicely opposing options. On the one hand, there's the great hall scene with all the talking mm-hmm. uh, mm. and it's, you know, the, the sort of ludicrous, but just about plausible plot plot twists. And then I think uh, yeah, the cable car is so, uh, is, is the cable car sequence is so fantastic. And mm. what always strikes me about that ca- cable car sequence in a film where so many people get killed, you know, the body count is uh, is incredible, uh, but nothing in the film is as violent as the, the fight, the good old-fashioned fight on the cable car. Now, it takes place very high up above the valley and all this kind of stuff, but it's sort of good old-fashioned you know, boot in the mouth, 
bother mm. an aggro to use the to use yeah. the words <laughs> uh, uh, of the time and the single you know, the the two single most violent films in the things in the film seem to be one when uh, Burton puts the the ice axe in the guy's Oof, uh, yeah. arm mm. that is that has really yeah. got to hurt and yeah. then even more so when he kicks him in the teeth uh, that, yeah. that, that yeah. really hurts uh, that really Donald hurts Houston's scream as he falls as well oh, really struck me as a child and it, and it stays yeah. with you <laughs> that's love, a hell of a scream I love how you, you wrote about that sequence in your book you're saying it's like the most Welsh thing that Burton could have done <laughs> kicking in the teeth and Christensen and Berkeley are a high altitude tag team I, I love the the, image, the, <laughs> the words you use there and and uh, something about that scene as well it got me thinking last night when I was re-watching it that that scene is very violent for the late 60s and I think I may have worked out why or maybe not you know there'll be someone out there who knows film three better than me but there was a film released in 1967 that starred Warren Beatty called Bonnie and Clyde and mm. the end sequence of that movie is very violent you know they really try to recreate the you know gunning them down in their car mm. um, and that movie was seen as a a sea change for the way that Hollywood tackled sex and violence and blood on screen and this movie is possibly one of the bigger uh you know budgeted movies to come out after and it has those violent beach you, know, you see people burn you see people you know you obviously hitting the teeth you know fall to their death it doesn't shy away from these things you know it's not done in it's not done in the way that it's done in sort of something like uh went the day well where you don't see the axe going in so it's not shown but i think that's interesting that it's made in the wake of this movie that is lauded as being a shift for hollywood and it doesn't shy away from it and, and as you say like matt that the scream as as Christiansen falls is is great, and the scale and depth of that scene is is just incredible for 1968. It's it's unparalleled even now. I don't think you know. It's a gorgeous piece of back it. projection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took five I, I weeks to film. So yeah, I think that for someone of my, I th- feel there's a real generational divide with. Um, uh, uh, with cinema special effects. For somebody of my generation, I was born in 1958. And what that means, I think, is that the old flat projection that you used to get in the kind of early Hitchcock films, I mean, that always looks ludicrous and unconvincing <laughs> to me. On the other hand, though, um, you know, I can't bear films with CGI because the first thing that CGI seems to do is completely remove the, the mm. law of gravity. With CGI... <laughs> Anything becomes possible. It's like a different universe. Where Eagles Dare, I th- think, it seems to me it takes place between these two extremes of, uh, of a flat projection that I can no, no longer buy into and, uh, and this kind of computer world. Yeah. And although, yeah, I can see that it's sort of flat projection. I mean, the thing, one of the key things about uh, Where Eagles Dare is that a lot of the, the stunt work was genuinely dangerous. And mm-hmm. I think whatever else you might think about the film, uh, you know, and who's starring in it, gravity is a crucial force in this film, isn't it? And it's never to be underestimated. In other words, to sum up the dangers, uh, the danger in that cable car and other sequences seems very real indeed. Mm. Yeah, it does. You know, and when you get the, the guy falling after the rope's been cut as well, like they, they, Mm. they, they don't shy away from that. They linger on him falling um, I, I appreciate everything this movie's doing in its 1968 way to show you all of that and, and have to get it in there. You, you know, you can't fake yeah. it. You know? No, well, exactly. And and part of that is the, the the use of blood squibs, which yeah, you, I mean, this is the f- a fairly early use of the, that kind of blood squib mm. um, t- 
to show people getting shot because a lot of films didn't bother with it. You know, you, you saw really. the gunfire. The Someone would hold, just hold where but, they'd been shot. Yeah, they? yeah. Uh, and then you might get a close up with some with some fake blood. But you know, they they were using blood squibs, uh, command detonated, and then they were using uh, like a, a gun that blew it onto people. So the, oh the, wow, okay, yeah. So in the um, uh, the behind the scenes um, short film that was made with the film on location. Mm. Wiggles there. Um, there's a little, there's a great little scene that shows the shooting of the bit where they've just blown up the woodshed, and Clint has stabbed the sentry in the neck, visceral again. Mm. Um, um, and then Burton shoots with a silenced pistol the other uh, sentry that was on the other side of the bridge, and he comes across. Once that, that's such a beautifully framed shot. That lorry mm. goes past, and then the the other sentry goes, "Where's my?" friend gone and goes to look for him <laughs> yeah. and then yeah. and then bet and shoots him and in that in the behind the scenes um film it shows that there was a um someone kneeling on the floor with a with an air gun that fires up a little mm-hmm. uh like ball of paint like a paintball gun sort of thing oh, okay that, yeah. that detonated on the on the um the extras uh, i think it's his face that gets hit or, or yeah. his neck yeah um and I just thought that was that was really fascinating. But yeah, is, I mean, yeah. coming coming off what you were saying about that sea change after Bonnie and Clyde, we also got um, the Wild Bunch, which mm. is a seminal second part western. Yeah, that's another. And one. and that was filmed around the same time as 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 Eagles was. So you definitely get that that change in um, the the violence and the visceralness of, of film after that. Yeah, except except that in uh, in the Peckinpah, the Wild Bunch, and I guess uh, even more closely to in terms of what it looks like, his later uh, Cross of Iron, mm-hmm. you know, that Second World War front uh, film set on the Eastern Front. I mean, what we're not getting in Where Eagles Dare is that slow motion, uh, yeah. beautiful uh, sort of poeticizing of uh, of of extreme bloodshed. Mm. It's all no, it remains very, very uh, functional as it's opposed very straight, to straight, isn't it? Yeah, yes, mm. exactly mm. that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, quick, just quickly, my my favourite scene is is the shootout. It's the other scene I think you know people will come to come to when they think of this movie. And I just love how it it just rides the line between like parody and pastiche. So you've got you know Clint's not reloading as you know he's not reloading as much as he would need to. But then it's the, sort of the whole thing of this seamlessly countless line of German troops waiting to be shot and they all run into the corridor to you know, fall. And then yeah. there's an even, and I, every time I watch it, I'm like, he's going to say a one-liner, but he never does. It's it's the bit where the... And that would have ruined it if you had. No, it would have done, mm-hmm. yeah, but I always think he's going to. You know, like when he's on, Clint comes over the stairwell and he sort of smirks mm. at the guys yeah. and he opens yeah, up before, on them. Yeah. I always mm. think he's going to say something like a quip. But now they do that. They don't need to. It's this sort of nod to the audience. It's this whole thing of, I keep coming back, I kept coming back to my notes, that he's just playing this strong, silent Western cowboy type character who's just been plonked into a World War II movie. It just seems that because everything he does, he never misses. He has the cool sort of, he, I mean, he says hello to that guy and he pulls the gun out of the briefcase and just shoots him. It's it's like action movie oh, stuff. Yeah. And There's it's, it's a great so bit cool. in your book, Jeff, where you describe you know, that, that whole sequence of, his his masterclass in movement around the castle. Oh yeah, yeah. Where, like Roger where Federer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where he's you know shooting Nazi sentries left, right, and center, and you know dipping into the Tardis Bergen and, and popping explosives yeah. everywhere. It it's just, it is great, and it's a, just a very physical form of acting that that mm. Clint nails perfectly. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, Richard Burton nailed uh, 
yeah, Clint Eastwood's sort of style uh, perfectly when he described his way of moving as a kind of dynamic lethargy. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah, never yeah. hurried uh, Clint Eastwood at all. <laughs> and just to go back to that sequence where he's uh, shooting them in the corridors, I don't know whether this was just me, but it, as, I, as I watched it and listened to it, uh, I, I think this was quite deliberately done that the sort of percussive sound of the German bullets firing actually, I thought, echoed the drum theme of that initial sequence. Mm. And so there's this strange irony whereby the more the Germans fire, actually, the more they're enlisting the audio support of a theme which is tacitly on the on the side of the Eagles, thereby, uh, you know, contributing to the the, the Germans' own defeat. And yeah. I listened to that several times, thinking first of all that it was just a sign of how I was. Uh, becoming so infatuated with this film but then I, I but i am actually convinced that it is there mm, it very much it very much could be you can definitely see the link there and you can hear it as well like i definitely yeah. get that um and i like how you know you just in your book you describe the the grenades having like eastward time when they're thrown at him because i've always oh, noticed yeah. that i'm like well that had gone <laughs> off by now but no clint's got yeah. a lovely amount of time just to throw them back and explode them. And he has like yes. one line during that shootout where he just pops his head into Burton and goes, grenades, and just sort of like <laughs> yeah. saunters off again. I and love it. <laughs> the the professionalness of that, like I, I really like because they are described at the very beginning of the film in in, in the briefing sequences, you know, professional professional soldiers, professional yeah. um killers. And, and Burton even describes um uh, Clint as an assassin. Um yeah. and I, I I like how he just has to say grenades and Burton knows to go into the little room yeah. <laughs> and take cover for a minute. Um, but I, I think the, the the thing with that um, that hallway sequence is the Germans, as you said, Rob, they kind of do just line up to get shot. Yeah. But it's not so egregious that you go, oh, come on. No, it's exactly. not like a, it's you not don't. like a, like yeah. a, um, like one of those terrible, like early 60s spy films where they do, kind of just line up to get shot the henchman yeah. um there's there's parts the shots in that sequence where a guy will get killed he'll roll out of the way as he's killed mm. and then another guy drops down into exactly where yeah. he was the and any, anyone like yeah. using their you know cognitive like power would know that probably i shouldn't take cover in the exact <laughs> spot where someone just just this second got killed yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. but they don't they just they just jump into the position but it, it it's so nicely choreographed and it builds. So it go it starts off with Clint getting the drop on them as they're coming down the hall. He waits like until they're right on him as well, yeah. um, which is another one of those great moments of tension, which the film does really really well and Hutton nails perfectly. But then it it ramps with the uh, there's two Germans firing MP40s, then there's an MG42 brought up, then there's a single grenade thrown. Then there's three grenades thrown. It just ramps and it builds, and the whole film is a masterclass, I think, of mm. of doing this this build, and especially the last act. For me, my favorite scene is uh, is basically the escape, and I love how mm -hmm. it's composed and constructed because it 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 never really lets you take a breath, other than that sequence where they uh, they rappel down the side of the castle down mm -hmm. to the cable car. So, you know, you have that, um, the, the whole sequence where, which is incredibly enthralling, but then it ends with this miniature shootout where, mm -hmm. um, where the Nazis get killed. Um, and, um, 
Mary uh, walks into the room and, and is about to come face to face with the the trained nurse who is also the receptionist who is also the general's aide. She's doing <laughs> yeah. a lot of jobs, that lady. She's, yeah, um, she's the yeah. Dr- the drug dealer as well, isn't yeah, she? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, the truth telling yeah. drug. Yeah, she's she's got a lot of roles. Um, the Wehrmacht Clint was... Wells machine gun. She do Wells jobs. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, um, but and, and you think, oh, is Mary? You're going to shoot it? No, like Clint just really coldly lines her up and just drops her. Yeah. But from that moment onwards, it we get that brilliant sequence of of Clint moving around the castle, setting up booby traps and and killing German sentries. And from then on, once they the the whole hallway uh, shootout ends it it continues to ramp until we get to that brilliant cable car scene that you mentioned jeff and even after that's finished then you get mm. like another little extra climax of them escaping in the bus yeah which is beautifully shot and beautifully executed it's just that yeah, last act uh, for me is perfect yeah about i but very nearly half the film is taken up with yeah. uh, the the getaway the escape mm. isn't it yeah. so you know i wasn't entirely joking when uh, when you asked me what my favorite scene was for me mm-hmm. to say well the whole film because yeah. actually i mean one of the things that seems to me such a sign of how skillful brian hutton was it's this thing which uh is i think it's yeah it's just the rhythm of the film it's just mm. got this beautiful rhythm to it which means that if you get in late at night and it's on tv and you start watching it you know you're a bit drunk it's actually very very difficult to stop uh watching because the it's not that the action never stops there are these pauses in the action but rhythmically you're encouraged Mm. to, to to keep watching right up until the end it just doesn't it doesn't let up so it's a a masterpiece of pacing as well i think yes yeah, the, the flow of it is expertly yeah. done um, and i think and maybe we should just quickly slide into final thoughts because we're getting into that territory like we always do on the favorite scenes and just to kick us off i mean following on from what you said there jeff the, the this film is perfectly paced it, it's one of the one of the films, sometimes I come on the show and I go, well, you know, you can cut five minutes here, you can cut ten minutes there. But this is one of those movies where I think, no, no, it's great. It's almost just a two-act movie. You set up the plot in the first half, second half's all action until, you know, the big bad, the, the villain, the true villain is revealed and he jumps out of the plane. Mm. And that's all you need. And it's, it's just, it's one of those movies where it just feels fresh whenever I watch it. Oh, yeah. It, it doesn't mm. feel dated as much yeah. as some of yeah. the movies we cover. Um, as I said earlier, timeless quality, but then there's something about it. It might just be me and my shocking memory, but I always seem to think there's new scenes added in. Matt mentioned the bus sequence. And I seem (laughs) to think every time it's, it's Clint shooting that corridor up and then they're in the plane. I always forget about that bus chase, Mm. Um, but it's always a lovely little extra reminder. I seem to always forget about the scene in the bar like when, when they give themselves up it's something oh, yeah. new every time about this movie and i've also got in my notes it's just a proper dad film it just feels mm-hmm. like one of these movies that your dad sits you in front of and go right this is great you need to watch this because mm. i think it was i think i had that you know and it it, it feels it's an itv4 movie if you're in the uk <laughs> you'll know what that means um, yeah. because they always seem to play movies like this but it's just it's great, worth, isn't it? It's worth yeah. adding as well. It's uh, it's actually a very long film. Gosh, yeah, two uh, and a half hours. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
But, um, you know, and so often you go to the cinema now and you're thinking, oh, God, yeah, I could so have improved this film by cutting out 20 minutes or whatever. But mm. this this film just, just flashes by, doesn't it? It does, uh, yeah. And I think also the other thing about it with films from that kind of time, I always liken it to The Italian Job, another getaway film, mm-hmm. is that, yeah, I can enjoy watching uh, The Italian Job or any number of these other films but I always have my enjoyment always has a slightly ironic twist to it that I'm always having to make allowances for it. That's never the case with Where Eagles Dare. I can always give myself to it uh, authentically. And the fact that I'm a much more discerning cinema goer now, obviously, than I was when I first saw it, aged 11 or whatever. Um, Actually, I feel that what happens is that my appreciation of it has, if anything, increased over time, whereas that really hasn't actually happened, if I'm honest, when I'm talking about the Italian job or, um, you know, yeah. um, the Riviera touch with Morecambe and Wise, which I can also oh, enjoy. What a classic, like though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. jumping off that, I would say that you can probably start watching at the halfway mark where Clint and Ben are infiltrating into the castle and you can still feel like you've watched a whole film yes. in that you get all yeah. of the plot points, everything happens. It's super exciting. And it's a great little, you know, it takes you on all the points that it's going to hit anyway. Yeah. And you isn't can that the power of it though, that it would, that it is be the power a, of it. And it's definitely it, yeah. an amazing, you know, positive of the way that Hutton filmed the film and uh, McLean wrote the screenplay. Mm. Yeah. In that you can start watching at the halfway mark, and you don't really need the it, the film's enriched by the first half. Let's let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. But you can you can watch it, and you can just remember what happened. Or yeah. if you came to it fresh and you'd never seen it before, and someone put it on halfway, you would soon pick up what's going on, um, and you would get all the same enjoyment out of it, which is kind of incredible, really. No, it really is. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of it's always. It's always good if there's a little area of dissent in these discussions. I think that um, I think the beginning is so important because we've got that kind of thing of mystery. You know, what's going on here in that straight after the Mm. parachute drop, one of them has been killed and it turns out his neck's not been broken due to a failure in the parachute. So it becomes obvious early on that there's some sort of traitor in their midst. Mm -hmm. And I think that element of suspense and one of the great things about suspense, it can be sustained in the midst of an entire uh, absence of action. I think that's a really important quality, yeah. uh, which which key and that that quality of suspense and mystery is only resolved with the big uh, you know double cross scene in the, in in the great hall. So uh, mm. yeah, I feel we'd get a great action film, but we wouldn't get a this, great suspense film this, without that's that. That's what but, I was about to say. You get an action film at the the, the end half, but if you watch the entire film, you get that that beautiful yeah. mix of of the suspense and yeah. the thriller. And I'll admit that I need that little sequence of of um, Clint and Richard trying to get into Schloss Adler to work out what happened in that um, the 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 big hall scene because I can never work out what's really going on. I, I always seem to think Richard Burton's the villain. I always seem to think he's the actual villain. And somewhere in my brain, I'm always going, "No, well, he has a change of heart at the end, doesn't he?" He goes, "Oh no, I can't be a Nazi anymore. I have to help the, I have to help <laughs> yeah. Clint get the guy home." You know, I always think that happens. But oh no, he no, he is actually a British agent, and he's just playing a, the role of a 
dual agent, but he is a dual agent. But even then, is he? It's, it's I'm always just conflicted at the end. I'm like, oh, okay, now we're in the end plane bit. This is the actual villain. Everything else was sort of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Richard's doing his thing. Mission's fine. And I, I always need that extra. I spend 20 minutes of that movie thinking, what's happening? What's going on now? <laughs> like, oh, no, Clint's shooting up the corridor. We're back mm-hmm. to where I know what's happening. But I think, that's, as we said, it's the that's the beauty of this movie is that it can give you all those things, but you never you never finish a watch of For Eagle's Dare having felt like you've wasted a couple of hours. Oh, indeed. Absolutely Whereas not. with some of these movies that we do, we're just sitting there in our living rooms going, what the hell was that? But not in this yeah. case. And I think it's, it's because it stands up as a really great piece of cinema. And that's one thing I would sort of say, but sort of almost in conclusion, that if you ever mm. get a chance to see it on the big screen, and of course oh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, would, it's in that great... I would great, love to see uh, it. You know, yeah, it yeah. really does look... Look! Look! Um, amazing. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that would be the dream, wouldn't it? If we can rent a cinema one day, we'll have to stick <laughs> yeah. it out for everybody. <laughs> and just before we round up, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention that there are in fact three reloads in the film because everyone says no one reloads in the whole sequence. <laughs> mm-hmm. You see Clint reload the PPK just as he comes right? into shot. You can see him rack the slide, and then in the back of the bus, there's at least two reloads, and I think Mary Yo yeah. reloads as well. You'll need so... to do a little. <laughs> A little reload supercut for everyone to watch. <laughs> it's a very short supercut, Rob, but there's <laughs> definitely some there. reloads yeah, in yeah. there. You dispel some myths. So, I mean, I think that is that is where Eagles Dare. And you know, thanks again for Jeff for joining us because you know it's been great to talk about the film with someone who loves it just as much as we do. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and do remember his book Broadsword Calling Danny Boy is available in the run up to Christmas. Well, by the time this goes out, it might be a bit late. But you know, if Boxing Day, if you're out and about and you're in a bookstore and you see it, do grab it because it's it's just a... those book vouchers that that yeah, Nan got you for Christmas. Yeah, yes. yeah come on. Do. Yeah, not only is it funny, <laughs> it's just it's a great read, and you'll you'll just love the film even more coming off the back of it. I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely homage to it. It's great. It really, Thank really you so much it. for coming on, Jeff. Well, thank you both. That was a real pleasure. And there we have it. That was Where Eagles Dare for Christmas 2022. Thanks again for Jeff for joining us. And uh, we'll see you in the new year when we're back on, I think, the 11th of January, Matt, aren't we? I think so. So, yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great Christmas and New Year. Yeah. And, yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. And watch Where Eagles Dare over Christmas again. Why not? Obviously. Come on, Rob. Obviously. You know, <laughs> we can all give Clint Eastwood a lovely royalty check for Christmas with all the extra money <laughs> that yeah. will help raise him. <laughs> Fabulous. Have a good Christmas, everybody. We'll see you in the new year. Bye, guys. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.